The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Good morning. This is P.I.'s Declassified, and I have two great guests with me this morning, one from the Netherlands, Eddie Seacrest, and one from Toronto, Canada, Brian King. And we're hoping that Roy Whitehouse from Portugal will be joining us. Um, we actually tried to broadcast this exact same program from South Africa two weeks ago when we were all attending the Council of International Investigators Conference there. But it didn't happen because of uh, poor Internet connections and poor transmission, and therefore we decided to do it today. So I'd like to welcome uh, to the show Brian King and Eddie Seacrest. Hi, guys. Hi, Francine. Hi, Francie. Thanks for uh, inviting us on. Oh, no, my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. Um, let me just uh, introduce Brian to you first. Um, Brian, Brian D. King, he's a president of CKR Global, which is in Toronto, Canada, founded in 1984, and it's one of the Canada's largest investigation of risk management firms today. He's a criminology graduate and has worked in various investigative capabilities, including a supervisor in Northern Ontario for a national claims investigations firm. And then he was director of investigations for Southern Alberta before founding this very large firm. Um, Brian's, Brian, your firm is, I think you said you had about 400 offices. Is that correct? No, we have 23 offices and 400 employees. Oh, now. 400 employees. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. His main practice, from what I understand, is directed towards the corporate insurance and government communities and specializing in white collar and fraud. He's a member of the board of directors of the Council of International Investigators and just completed a second term as president of the association. He's a charter member and past board member of the Global Investigations Network, founding partner of Investigations Canada, a national partnership of investigation firms across Canada, He's a certified fraud examiner. He's an active member of as is the American Society of Industrial Security. And he's actually a recipient of the Global Investigators Network Investigator of the Year Award. Uh, and the prestigious, also the prestigious International Investigator of the Year Award by the Council of Investi- and International Investigators. So welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you. And thank you for that uh, great introduction. Yeah. Well, um, so Brian, Expand a little bit on on what you do and how you how you got into this crazy business of private investigation. Well, you, you know, it's it, uh, my 
getting into the business was kind of um, um, an interesting uh, process. I, I mean, going back to my you know uh, early teenage days, I I, I did a post secondary education in um, in criminology. Was um, really planning on getting into probably some type of law enforcement background. Although my my parents always reminded me that from about the age six, I used to put the uh, you know a label of private detective on my bedroom door. But um, um, after coming out of um, a post-secondary, I apprenticed with a private investigator in Toronto, um, learning, uh, you know, much of the trade from the eyes of a small player um, who was very um, uh, bent on quality and, and really en- enjoyed that uh, period. And as you mentioned in the introduction, I then went on to work for a, uh, a larger firm in Alberta, can- Canada, and um, and got to learn the trades of um, of a much larger agency. And my whole focus, although originally was on criminal investigations, uh, um, uh, I don't know what it's like in the in the U.S., but in Canada here, um, it is very very hard to make a, a living um, or a substantial living doing criminal investigations. So my practice very quickly sort of. Uh, began to target um, um, white-collar crime and, and doing um, corporate fraud investigations and, and that type of, uh, of um, uh, assignments. And it's, you know, it's just grown and developed from that stage. Okay, very good. Well, and did it turn out to be uh, that private investigation was what you thought it was when you were a teenager? You know, uh, I'm getting so old, uh, Francie. I, <laughs> I don't remember. I, I, I can't remember what I thought. I mean, certainly I'm not driving around in a red Ferrari and have girls hanging off my um, arms uh, every day like you see on TV. Um, but, no, I mean, it, it actually – this is – you know, I, I have to um, – you know, um, I have to thank a higher being every day that um, I, you know, I don't know whether it's I was in the right places at the right time or just the, the energy and drive that I had that we were able to grow this business. And, and you know, it's been past my wildest imaginations. In fact, my wife um, um, often comments that nobody should like their job as much as you do because I'm <laughs> out, out the door early in the morning and, and um, um and and in sort of late at night because you know we 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 run a very busy practice and and uh, as as those that are in this profession know that it's a reactionary business a lot of times where you know you uh, you have to um, respond to the client's needs but uh, yeah I I think it's it, it's probably surpassed what I what I my expectations were Francie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and was Tom Selleck and the red Ferrari model. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I actually no. I think I went into a little bit more um, problematic uh, okay. <laughs> approach, and and uh, you know, although maybe there was a slight bit of hope in the background. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, what's an average day like, Brian? What what would an, what does an investigator do? Well, uh, I mean, with the size of my firm, I mean, believe it or not, I'm still involved um, um, very closely with a lot of uh, investigations, especially the larger ones. And, and you know, I mean, every day is different. Um, you know, I get up early in the morning, I, I drive to my office and, and, you know, depending on what the, you know, what the day entails, I could be going out to handle an investigation that stage, or I could be dealing with a client concern. Uh, often I'm, I'm dealing with um, um, project managing um, a client's calls when they come in. Um, 
And, um, you know, every day is different. The types of work that we do here, um, I mean, it, it's it's really widespread from, as I said, as from white collar crime or corporate fraud. We're also very heavily involved in intellectual property protection for our clients, which is your patent and trademark infringement cases. Mm-hmm. And, and so we could be going out on a raid one day where, you know, um, I know we were responsible last year for the largest seizure in Canadian history. We collected about $20 million in counterfeit product in downtown. Toronto from a uh, from a group of uh, warehouses that were um, um, that were uh, being uh, run by some uh, um, organized crime groups and um, so so every day is is different you don't really know what uh, to anticipate it's it's um, and uh, you know we, we try to plan as best as we can but you don't know um, um, from the start of the day to the end of the day what it's going to bring. Yeah, for sure. And could you explain a little bit for our listeners what uh, trademark and patent infringement means? Well, this would be this would be um, working for for clients in a wide spectrum from from the, the electronics technical field to the apparel field in in protecting their um, brands. In other words, um, um, dealing with people that might counterfeit um, um, uh, running shoes or or, or um, clothing apparel. Um, you know, we've worked on golf clubs, uh, everything where product is typically brought in from overseas um, um, in quite often from Asia um, that that is a you know usually a good representation of the actual um, um, brand or product that is being produced quite often the products are being produced there anyways mm-hmm. and and we our job is to go out and to to um, find these and and uh, um, and 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 cut the source off and and deal with uh, stopping that influx of product coming in quite often um, um, you know we're we're dealing with uh, and and of course we have to do it within the letter of the law so we have some resources that are available to us in Canada I think very similar to what they have the US and other um, um, and other um, countries which is called an Anton pillar order and a Mariva injunction Uh, most of those laws date back to the the British um, um, Commonwealth, but um, so we we actually have uh, powers that we seek uh, remedies from the courts that allow us to go in and use what technically what is called a civil search warrant to um, search and seize product and to freeze bank accounts. So it's uh, it's quite an interesting um, um, area of our practice. You know that really is fascinating, and and isn't it true that if a um, if if a company doesn't protect their patent or their trademark as as you're talking about and the seizures and identifying the perpetrators of the infringement that they will lose their their right to their patent or trademark or their their uh their emphasis about that brand oh absolutely and 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 some companies are very diligent um um with respect to this i mean if you don't if you don't do what you, you know everything you can within your means to protect your brand and you allow people to use it after a period of time um you know it will be considered consensual i i often chuckle about a situation we ran into ourselves a few years ago at a trade show um, I believe it was um, at Aziz or one of the other um, um, U.S. conferences, Francie, where we were giving away as part of a, um, of a, a promotion a, a free iPod for those uh, members of the um, 
of the uh, actually it was an INTA conference, the International Association of Trademark uh, um, um, uh, Firms, and uh, we were giving away a free uh, iPod, and we had a picture of the iPod and 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 its logo up on 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 the front of our trade show booth saying stick your business card in for this and we actually had the um the legal representative for apple come up to us and ask us to remove it because it was a, an infringement of their logo really yes wow yes That's so i mean, certain so that, there's a company that takes that very, very seriously. Yes, they absolutely do. And I've been involved a little bit in uh, in trademark infringements. It's really interesting. And when you set up a seizure, you're actually you're getting law enforcement involved, and you're going in and actually taking over that property. Yes, is that absolutely. correct? Yes, absolutely. And 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 storage and um, and uh, continuity of evidence um, um, with respect to how it is how it has been seized and how it's being stored right up until the time that um, you have to do, deliver this evidence to court. And does it turn into a criminal proceeding in Canada, or is that still civil? Um, it, it is civil. There is also criminal remedies now in Canada for this. There's also, you know, our Copyright Act, which is is a federal law. So there's federal laws that 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 um, um, to take place here, but um, uh, and they, and they may not necessarily be on the criminal code, but they're treated the same way. They have. Mm-hmm. Similar type of penalties. We we've had um, several people incarcerated for for lengthy periods of time for continued infringement of this type of stuff. So so this is not simply um, seize the product and and um, and uh, everybody goes away happy. We quite often and in, in, in most cases continue the prosecution and and if there's not a very severe fine, um, the likelihood of of um, a jail sentence for repeated offenses is high here in Canada. Interesting. Interesting. And, and can, do you have, um, well, let me back up. I had another question. Uh, I was just wondering for people listening, your, your day is definitely not an eight to five job, is it? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, I, uh, I, I actually start my days usually at about six in the morning and quite often don't finish till eight, nine or 10 o'clock at night. Um, you know, some of that is by, you know, by choice and some of it is driven by client needs. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And what would you say if you could, if you could talk about it, um, one case that comes to mind that is memorable for you? Well, I, I have to say probably, and, and this is not, um, one of the, um, um, uh, you know, uh, there, there's probably two cases, Francie, that that come to mind. One is a, a more recent one that I, well, both are fairly recent. Um, was in the late 2000s, uh, um, around 2009, when I was retained to go to Indonesia to, to conduct an investigation into a uh, 40 billion, and I'm, this is not 40 million, but 40 billion dollar gold fraud that occurred in Canada. And um, I think what was intriguing to me about that case was is that this is a, this is a matter that the Canadian government had no jurisdiction on in Indonesia, and it involved parties, um, you know, from Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore, Canada, and the U.S. And um, I spent three weeks in Indonesia doing this investigation, being one of the first people to talk to some of the parties that were involved actually perpetrators involved in this um in this fraud so that was a an interesting case but probably my most memorable 
case that I was involved with is is a um, one that I conducted for some criminal lawyers involving a um, a, uh, um, a young boy who was 14 years of age who was sentenced to hang at the age of at the age of 14 back in 1959 for a murder of a 12 year old girl in a uh, off an Air Force base here in Canada. Mm. It's called even Truscott case. And there have been about six books written on it. And what made it very memorable for me is I remember when I was in um, post-secondary education taking the criminology program, doing a paper on this particular case, not thinking that I would ever be involved in it. And that dates back to about 1976 when I did that paper. Well, in 2006, I was contacted by this law firm to assist them with this investigation into this case, of which, you know, like I said, about five or six books had been written on. And we we worked on this case. Um, um, and and the, the person that was sentenced to hang is actually still alive. He's um, he his life his uh, his sentence to be hanged was commuted um, about six months after. After he was convicted to life imprisonment, and we were able to substantiate that he was actually innocent of this crime, and um, he's actually had his name uh, cleared um, and um, the acquittal reversed uh, in, uh, I want to say, 2009, we were able to get that, that acquittal um, um, uh, removed and um, so it's sort of one of those fascinating cases that you you put all of your blood and soul into because you believe in in what's happening and and uh, sure. uh, it was uh, you know it was sort of a life altering case for me. It sounds like it sounds fascinating. I don't know how you actually got all of these things coordinated. It sounds yeah, uh, it was it, yeah, it was a very complex case in the, in so much that this. This happened just offside an air air force base um, in 1959, 50 years ago, and um, involved um, um, young children. Who um, anybody that knows has ever lived with the military families know that quite often after two or three years the families are dispersed at different bases. So we had people that that had been dispersed throughout Canada because they lived in military families and. And they were, you know, it occurred 50 years ago. So our job was primarily to locate all of these witnesses who had testified at the original trial. So, I mean, just based on what I've told you just now, you can see how complex this was. And oh, I, can, I can see that we were able to locate everyone that was still alive. So That's yeah. amazing. And, and, you know, people don't think there's so much legislation, uh, particularly in the U.S., about uh, controlling privacy and, and, you know, not providing social security numbers and not providing personal identifying information. And people don't realize that when they have a complex situation like that, where you're looking for witnesses for years ago, that those are the only tools you have. And I can't yeah, even it, imagine what it's like doing it internationally. Yeah, no, it, it becomes very complex. I mean, we're, we're fortunate here in Canada that um when when you know you know five to ten years ago when all these privacy laws came in that we had a very strong lobbying group in canada that were able to get legislated under the regulations of our our uh, federal privacy bill a uh, investigative body status for private investigators which um which gives us a little bit more leeway than i think uh, some of our american counterparts have but you know it wasn't was a result of some very strong lobbying with our government and and their recognition of the importance that we play in the in the in the overall uh a role of the of the criminal civil and justice system yeah for sure brian we have to take a break um 
it's been just delightful talking to you. And I know you may have to leave, but you're certainly welcome to, to stay on and join in the conversation. Thank you, Francie. It's been great. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, just a couple of minutes and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declass. IRB Search is where quality matters. IRB provides access to the best online data for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB data gives you strength in numbers, allowing you to access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified, and you'll receive a two-week free trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Brian King, the founder of CKR Global, um, one of Canada's largest investigation and risk management firms has been talking to us in the first segment of this show. And now we're going to talk to Eddie Seacrest. Eddie Seacrest is from the Netherlands. He's, he's a certified fraud examiner, um, a CII, which I believe is a designation for uh, investigation, international investigations. Uh, he had founded a company called Aristeed, A-R-I-S-T-E-E-D, E period V period in 2003 in the Netherlands. It's a full service investigation company and serves corporate financial, maritime, legal, insurance, and investigation sectors. He says that Eddie, that is, says that investigations often have a cross border element. I'm sure, particularly when you're in uh, in your 
Europe to them, which in members of international associations have proven to be a valuable, invaluable asset. Um, Eddie was the conference chair for this amazing conference in South South Africa that was actually, uh, the hotel was actually on a wild game preserve, so I can't tell you how amazing it was, and he was a conference chair for that conference, and he's also the incoming president for the 2012-2013 year for the Council of International Investigators. So welcome, Eddie. Thank you, Francie. Thank you for being with us, and I know it's, uh, let's see, your time is uh, about 5.30 Netherlands time? 6.30. 6.30 p.m. 6.30 in the evening, yes. Okay, 6.30 p.m. Netherlands time. Okay. So um, so tell us a little bit about you. How did you get into this wonderful and crazy um, business? Well, before I started my company, and it's uh, it's called Aristide, you're right in that, and the BV is actually the legal form. Um, BV in the Netherlands is the same as a, as a PTY limited, let's say. Okay, or um, an L- LTD. Or, or uh, an LTD, yeah. Yeah, okay, all right. And um, before I before I started uh, my business, I actually, I was working for a company that specialized in credit risk. Hmm. Um, so so we were you know analyzing the risk of doing business, um, you know where our clients were doing you know the risk for our clients to do business with other companies, and um, it was really there that um, a lot of questions were coming in that didn't really. Um, that didn't really cover the scope of the services that were offered by the credit risk company, um, questions that required research or some other kinds of investigations that, didn't, that weren't necessarily um, part of the credit risk uh, product. Okay. And, and it was there that I actually saw an opportunity to, to go into the investigation sector. Um, and that's when I... That's when I actually started to. That's when I when I decided to start my own business. Now I I know you were originally from South Africa. Did did you start in South Africa or did you start in the Netherlands? No, no. I worked for the credit risk business in the Netherlands, and okay. I started my business in the Netherlands. Okay. Right. And you know the first thing that I did um, was was I I, I, I needed to study, um, so I decided to to study with. The, um, with the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. They're based in, in Texas. Uh-huh. And uh, I completed the qualification there. And at the same time, I studied for my PI license in the Netherlands, which is, which is a one-year um, course as well. And um, what is, is it? I'm sorry. Yeah. What is required to get a PI license in the, in the Netherlands? Well, there's two things you need to do. You need to complete the theory uh, aspect of the course, which is about a one-year course, and you also need to uh, ha- have some practical hours um, mm-hmm. under your belt before um, you get awarded that license. And the theory side of the course is actually quite intensive, um, with a big focus on on the law mm-hmm. um, and uh, on civil and criminal law, and and then there's quite a lot of focus on on tactical and technical um, investigations or research. Hmm. And and then the last module that we cover is surveillance, where we do quite a lot of uh, practical um, uh, assignments um, oh. during the course, which is which is quite interesting as well. Sounds like an interesting course. And how long did this take you to do? One year, and then at the end of the at the end of the year, you you, you are eligible to to do your exam, which is an oral exam. Um, and um, you're you're required to do that exam in front of a panel of 
of uh, of two individuals, and there's a moderator as well for that exam. That sounds intimidating. It is (laughs) very intimidating and very intensive, yes. Yeah, wow. And then uh, if you pass that oral exam, then you're granted a license. Correct. Okay. How difficult is it to start up a business like a private investigation business in your country? Well, once you, once you have the, um, well, you need to register uh, with the Chamber of Commerce, just like any other business. And, and then, um, to get a license, as I, as I say, you need to have passed that exam. Um, you, you cannot, you cannot have a private investigation business in the Netherlands without a license. I see. Okay. So, so a license is a prerequisite. And then you are licensed with the Ministry of Justice, with the Dutch Ministry of Justice. And, um, and, and then, uh, and then you can, and then you can run your business. And then every year, um, you've got to renew your license initially. And then, up, you know, after that, it's every three years. Um, and that gets renewed with your, um, with, with, with the, um, with the police in that, in, in your specific area where you are living. And so, so okay. you, you report to, you report to a police officer. In your area. Okay, so the, the Dutch justice supervises the police as well? Correct. Is that how that works? Okay. Yes. Okay, interesting. And for, so. For the licensing part of it, yes. Yeah, and you started your personal, your own business in 2003, is that correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so now that you have uh, a few years under your belt, how do you feel about it? It's wonderful. Um, you know, I was, I was very fortunate in the, in, in the beginning. I, I, I quickly, I was, I was able to get a client very quickly and, um, and they gave me the opportunity to do some work for them. And, 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 um, I did that well. And, um, through word of mouth, you know, they, they helped me grow my business. Um, so I was, I was able to, to grow the business, um, quite quickly and, and, and grow my client base very quickly. And I know that, that your business profile says you do corporate, financial, maritime, legal insurance. Um, is there a, do you have a specialty specifically? Not really. Um, it's, it's quite generalist and I cover all sectors, um, you know, right across, right across the board. Um, I also do shipping work as well. Um, but there, there, there is no focus on, on any one particular sector as such. So what would you say has been your, your most favorite case? Um, there are a number of them. Um, there are three that jump to mind. Um, okay. And, um, I'll start with, I'll start with one of them. Um, it was actually one of my earlier cases and, uh, this, Possibly just give the give the lesson, listeners an idea of 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 how an investigator would think about trying to solve a particular problem when they when they are, are given one by a client. And and this particular case, a, a client asked me to find a small private jet, and the only thing he had was a photograph of the jet. Oh, great! And, <laughs> yeah. Right. And and the jet the jet could have been anywhere in the world, so it, it wasn't. <laughs> Taylor aeroplane. It was. It had jet engines, and, and it could be anywhere in the world. So, so the first thing I did was is I tried to look on all the, you know, I tried to look for for the register. We knew who the owners were. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we had a good suspicion of who the owner was. But so at um, least you had a starting place. 
we had a, we had a starting place, yeah. but we had absolutely no idea where this jet was. Yeah. And we, we looked, you know, we, we tried to find the registration information of the airplane, but we, we, we didn't manage to find that, um, because we didn't know where the, where the airplane was registered. And, um, you know, we didn't know the location of the airplane at all. Hmm. So, so what I, after thinking for a while, I, I came across these plane spotters that, um, that sit at various, that stand at various airports around the world and they take photographs of aeroplanes. Interesting. Um, and, um, so I started reaching out to them and it is amazing the amount of information that they store on their computers about all the aeroplanes that land and take off. Um, at the various airports all around the world. Now, this being a small private jet, the chances were pretty big that this jet was locked up in a hangar somewhere in some small airport somewhere in the world. And are these, and, and Eddie, are these plane spotters, are they volunteers? Do they do this for fun? What, what's their role? It's just a hobby that they have. Really? Yes, it's, it's a pure hobby. And, um, so, so I reached out to, I reached out to these plane spotters and you can just do that over the internet. Hmm. And, and, and after about a month, one of them came back to me and I posted the photograph as well. And one of them came back to me and said, yes, I know this airplane. Really? And they had seen it. And, um, he said, well, just give me a moment and I'll go through my logs and I'll tell you where it is. And he had actually, logged the exact movements of this aeroplane, you know, for the last six months. And it was actually in a hangar, locked up in a hangar, hmm. uh, completely covered um, with uh, – completely covered up and for storage purposes. And um, he, he had he had tracked it. And every, every couple of months, they would actually take the plane out of the hangar, um, run the engines, and then – put it back in the hangar again and he had the dates and times of when it's <laughs> amazing done. that's so, just phenomenal yeah so, so that was a that was a case solved and almost the client was quite astounded and this and so the maybe i missed something was this a stolen plane what was it what was the purpose for trying to find it it was an asset search oh and i'm sorry asset i probably missed that i'm sorry um it was an asset. asset so okay. Somebody looking for an asset, and um, the plane we found it in a in a very small private airport in France. And do you and think they were hiding the plane, or was it just they weren't using it? No, they were absolutely hiding the plane. They were hiding it. Yes, yes. Oh, that's hysterical! What a good job! Good job. Yeah. So All right. That, that was that was one of one of my earlier cases, and um, and, and to go on to another. Another case that I had was was in, uh, in in deepest darkest Africa, which was on a which was on a mining project site. That and sounds scary. Yes, it was. Well, particularly in lieu of the recent um, murders that happened at the mine site in South Africa. Absolutely, and this this wasn't in a, in a potentially a more developed African country. Uh, this was in a really undeveloped African country, which had. Um, where, 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 where civil war had, had just finished and mm. uh, people were still coming to grips with, with peace. Wow. And um, the CEO of this mining company invited me along. Uh, and not that I'm, I was quite surprised because I'm not uh, an expert on mining, 
but he thought it would be a good idea to have uh, somebody come along with him that, that, that would just have a completely different perspective on things. Mm-hmm. And he was suspicious that, that there was a significant amount of fraud taking place at this mining site. And fraud so, and what kind of fraud would go on at a mining site? Well, a lot of money was going missing. So the shareholders were investing a lot of money into the project. It was a project site, so they weren't excavating any commodity out of the ground as yet. They, it was still, on a, it was still a, um, on a project basis, so they were still doing the drilling at that time. Mm-hmm. And a lot, of, a lot of investors' money gets pumped into this project to, to then try and find a resource or to secure a resource, as they call it. And, and a lot of that money was, was going missing. So the question was, you know, how was the money going missing? Where, it, where was it going and how was this money being used? I see. And, and, and who was, you know, if this money was going missing, who was, who was behind it? And how did that develop? Well, it was interesting because we, it, it was about, once we had landed at the airport, it was about a five hour drive with a four by four through the bush. Um, to, <laughs> to get to the site. Okay. And, and it was quite interesting because while, as we were driving through the bush, it, it struck me that there was, Absolutely no animals. There were no birds um, and, and no animals at all. And um, it became apparent that, that actually all the wildlife had been eaten um, by the locals because there was just no food available. Oh, so it wasn't that the site was toxic and killing the animals. They were actually eating the animals. Exactly. And when we eventually got to the mining site, um, one of the first things that, that I asked for was um, for, their, for their journals um, they provided me, instead of providing me with their journals, they provided me with a, with a kind of a budget that they had drawn up. And there were about 25 people um, at this project site. Um, and the budget for – very quick, I had a very quick skim through it, and I saw that the budget for the food bill was $25,000 a month, hmm. which is quite excessive. Um, and that was one of the things that stood out. And then – um, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon uh, when we were reviewing this, and I walked over to the chef, and I said, "Well, what's for dinner?" And uh, the chef said to me, "Well, he's still got to catch dinner." And <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Twenty-five thousand budget. In so, a little later, I saw him running around after chickens with his with his panga, which he was going to slaughter some chickens that were running around the uh, the project site. So. Um, it became evident that that the twenty five thousand budget for um, for the food bill didn't quite add up. Exactly. So that's where they were burying the the fraud. <laughs> and uh, no, and you know that's that that sort of uh, aroused our suspicions, and we 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 went on and did a we did a full fraud audit of of the books. And with and, your background as a, a certified fraud examiner, you exactly. were qualified to do that. Absolutely. And uh, we did an audit. We interviewed all the staff at the site. And uh, after the interviews, um, we managed to get a confession. So now, um, first thing that comes to mind is, did everybody speak English or did you have to know another language? No, we are fortunate enough that this was an English-speaking um, African country. Yes. Okay. And not as a first language, but it was widely spoken. Okay. And then um, were the... 
people that you interviewed, were they cooperative? Were they antagonistic? How did that work? Well, it was a combination, um, and that's what's so interesting about fraud cases um, is that um, is, is that people that have got nothing to hide would be very open, um, and uh, often they are willing to help. Mm-hmm. People that are some that have got something to hide, um, you know, will will answer different will answer the same question in a different way. Correct. Yeah. And and this is uh, this is generally people dig themselves um, their own hole when <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to committing fraud, especially at, at, at an interviewing phase of an investigation. Well, some of our listeners might say, "Well, why would somebody confess? Why?" Um, so, how did that happen? How did the confession come about? Well, it's a combination because, firstly, firstly, after the audit. Um, you know, you, we, we started looking at the contracts and, and we could see that there were only, you know, one or two people that were responsible for signing those contracts. And initially, um, when we asked the, the people that were responsible for signing those contracts, um, and that had been taking kickbacks on those contracts, we, we asked them questions if, if they were, you know, solely responsible for those contracts, for example, and that they would be very quick, quick to, to shift the blame onto somebody else. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, through the interviewing process, it actually became evident that they had sole signing power and that they were solely responsible for the contract. So, you know, you you, you start catching them in their own lies. And, and that's when you start, you know, and after that phase of more open interviewing, you then start, um, you can then go into a phase of more confrontational interviewing. And, and that's where you break, that's where you would break the, the fraudster down. And And what was the fraud? Can you describe that or is that something that you can't talk about? No, I can't describe it. It was a, it was a, it was a, a kickback fraud. Um, and really, really what it was is that all the operations that were taking place at the mining site, um, from drilling to purchasing equipment, um, to building, um, you know, you, you would need to build accommodation for, for the people that are staying there, uh, and so on, um, supplies, um, everything was, Acquired at above market prices, um, so you know we were very we were in a position where we could benchmark uh, how much things would cost, mm-hmm. um, how much supplies, equipment, drilling cost in that area, and we we realised that you know everything was was twenty to fifty percent above market price. Hmm. Sounds like sounds like a complicated investigation, um, just because of the. Uh, Maybe different geographical area, the different kind of industry that people don't usually know a lot about, and dealing with the numbers and um, in a in a setting that that uh, is a little unusual. Yeah, um, one of the things that you also have to be aware of when you're going into a country that you're not completely familiar with is you have to be um, you have to be you know you have to be sensitive to the culture. Yes, and the way that you speak to people. Um, how you would speak to an English person is very different. How you would speak to somebody um, from from an African country, or from some, or from somebody from Asia, or from the Far East. Let's come back to that, Eddie. We need to take a quick break, but I, I want to hear more about that. We'll be right back.
news, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hi there. We're back. We're going to have to have a little change here. Uh, Eddie, I was going to ask Eddie Seacrest to talk to us about um, interviewing people of a, another culture. However, Roy Whitehouse from Portugal has joined us, and we've had a little technical difficulties this morning, but Roy has joined us, and we're happy to have him. And so I'm going to switch over now to Roy and tell you a little bit about him. Roy is the head of WIS International based in Portugal and in the United Kingdom with outlets in both Brazil and Angola. He specializes in research, investigation, business intelligence, and corporate risk. He's a member of a number of professional organizations, and he's present, just is presently past chairman of the board of directors of the Council of International Investigators. He's also a board member of the British Portuguese Chamber of Commerce, also a certified fraud examiner, examiner, a member of both the World Association of Detectives and Association of British Investigators. He served with the British Army. He joined the police force in central London and served in uniform in the CID, Criminal Investigation Department, becoming a sergeant before he left. He left the police department in 1980 and became an insurance investigator. And then in 1985, so he's been in business quite a while, he started a private practice in central London and then subsequently formed a Portuguese office a few years later. So welcome, Roy. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi. Thanks, uh, thanks, Francine. I'm very glad that uh, I believe uh, it was my fault that uh, we had a little time glitch, so I apologize for that. That's um, all right. That's okay. So we've we've got uh, Brian was from Toronto, Canada. Eddie is from the Netherlands, calling from the Netherlands, and Roy is calling in from Portugal today. Is that correct? I am. Yep, in the Portuguese office. Okay. Very good. Thank you. So what we've been talking about, uh, Roy, is uh, I. People are always interested how private investigators get into this business. So, how did you get involved? 
Well, I think it's because I was in the police service, and then when I left the police service, I joined an insurance company to do insurance fraud investigation. Obviously, the next step forward was to set up on uh, in private practice, and I set up with a friend of mine who also left the police, and he, he was in special branch. And when he left, he actually was a manager of an investigation company in the UK. Um, and then, you know, we, we, we had a partnership marriage, as it were, and um, set up our own office. Yeah, and so you've been in business now, gosh, about, um, what, 28 years? Something like that. Before Is that the right? Internet, before the emails and internet. Before the emails and the internet. Before Skype as well, right? Well, exactly, yeah. 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 So do you have a case, um, Roy, that, um, and I know I'm going to have you on a subsequent show, so I don't want, to, want you to talk about that case, uh, but do you have a case that, that you were most interested in or one of your favorite cases? Yeah, I, I've given this quite a little bit of thought since we discussed this a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago. And it really is it's, it's difficult, uh, you know, because, you know, a lot of PIs, they, they go on about the big cases and, the, you know, the millions of dollars they found, you know, stashed away in a hidden bank account or, mm-hmm. you, know, they, they, you know, they found a guilty partner. And it, it, it's, well, you know, the guilty person and, you know, they release the, the innocent from prison. Uh, and, you know, lots of PIs have got lots of stories. But I, actually, I normally like to, to refer to the the human side of investigation because, you know, a lot of listeners probably think we just go around, uh, you know, uh, investigating people and, and, and investigating the, the guilty. Well, uh-huh. in fact, as, as we know, you know, the investigations, always, always there's a lot of uh, human side of business. So um, when, we had, when I was in uh, a few years ago, when I was in the London office, we started specialising in tracing um, parents or mothers of adopted children mm. okay. uh, because they changed the law whereas adopted children were allowed to have access to their real birth certificates. Um, so we started specialising in that. Uh, and I think probably those cases are probably the best. I think one I actually did for a friend of mine, uh, so he was about 33 at the time, uh, he'd been adopted at birth uh, and obviously brought up by his adopted uh, family. Uh, and then when he was about 33, he wanted to obviously try and find his natural mother, mm-hmm. which is a, which is a, a normal thing. Uh, so we got we, you know, we got his uh, real birth certificate, which showed his real name. So his name wasn't Mark; it was Andrew. Um, and obviously showed his mother's name, but normally in these cases, not normally a father's name. Um, so we started obviously trying to trace the mother. Uh, we couldn't find any marriage for her. We couldn't find any occupation for her. We couldn't find any social security number for her. We couldn't find any death for her. Uh, so, so it looked like she'd disappeared. Uh, we obviously made inquiries at the, uh, uh, the last location, and of course no one remembered the family. Uh, we did research on the, to see if she had any brothers and sisters, uh, which she didn't in that, uh, at that stage, which I'll come to in a minute. Uh, then we, re- we had to do the research on her parents. We found her father was dead, had died. But the informant on the death certificate was a, was a different woman than her mother, or a different oh, Christian name. Uh-huh. So we went back and we found actually that her father and mother had actually divorced shortly after she'd given birth, and he'd remarried. 
So we researched all that again, and we found a half-brother. Uh, and subsequently through that, we found the, the mother uh, living in the USA, actually, living really? in Baltimore. So she's gone from the UK to Baltimore. She's never married. And uh, we obviously made contact, and we spoke to her partner, who was a lawyer uh, in Baltimore. And uh-huh. uh, before we got very far in the conversation, he said, um, <clears throat> is this uh, conversation about Andrew? And that was and that was your client's name? That was his real name. Okay. What, she, what she'd named him when he was born. Okay. And we said yes. And he said, um, you know, she'd been waiting 33 years for this phone call. Oh, that's fabulous. You know, because so, sometimes those situations can turn out badly because the person doesn't want to be found. Well, yes, I know. And, and sometimes, obviously, it, it's not they, they don't want to be found or they actually don't want anything to do with their, their normally their firstborn child. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and how, just a question here, Roy, how did you uh, determine that she was in the U.S.? Uh, we managed to trace her half-brother, and when I spoke to him, obviously we didn't tell any, him or anybody what it was about, but he said, oh, yes, my half-sister, blah, 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 she moved to the U.S. and she lived somewhere in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we found her there. But it took us six months. To, it uh, did. From... Because that, this was before the Internet. Oh, yes. Well, of course, before your Internet. And then uh, did, were you able to reunite the two people? Yeah, no, they, they, uh, we put them in touch with each other, and then she came over to the U.K., and they reunited, and he started going on a holiday to the U.S. So that was, um, was a happy ending. And the circumstances for giving up, the, giving up Andrew or what? Well, Do normally, you know? so he was born in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, post-war, you know, he was the same in the U.S., I think, you know, unmarried mothers having children was frowned right. upon. Times have um, changed, haven't they? Sorry? Times have changed a little bit, haven't they? Oh, yeah, the times have changed, fabulously. But, you know, yeah. I always find there's, there's an awful lot of children given away, basically, or abandoned, as they, they, they call it, which is true, uh, normally because of the attitude of the, the girl's parents. Right. Right. Very sad, but there you go. So, but I was just trying, you know. So the investigations <clears throat> do have a human side to us, and as I say, a lot of people think we're just always after the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And you know, I always, I often say that people don't hire a private investigator because everything's good. They hire a private investigator because they have a problem. And yeah. sometimes that problem, like you say, is a very human human problem that involves um, their lifestyle or uh, something in their background. And this is a, a great, absolutely great result where two people have become very happy that they were rejoined. Yeah. It's a yeah. fabulous story. Uh, and yeah. I, 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 going back, to, I mean, I, I always say to, to people generally, you know, if you have a problem that you can't get resolved through going to your lawyer or your accountant or anybody else, go to a private investigator because they'll normally find the answer you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, normally. And it may, certainly makes it much more difficult if you're crossing international boundaries. Well, yeah, and, obviously it's a lot better now because of one, uh, you know, because of national, international associations, which is, you know, helps us all. That's true. Um, and, that, that, uh, and also the Internet, which is... Uh, 
you know, I mean, if, if they took the internet away from us now, we'd really have to go backwards a bit. <laughs> and that's true. And what, and you mentioned that this is kind of the theme of the show is how important invest, uh, investigation associations are. That's how we all know each other, you yeah. and I and Eddie and Brian. And, uh, we can exchange work. We can consult with each other regarding, you know, ideas on what to do, when and how. Uh, it's uh, a great process, so I highly recommend uh, joining not only in U.S. your state association. I belong to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, a national association like National Association of Legal Investigators or National Council of Investigation Security Services, or international, the Council of Invest. In international investigators, which we're all a member of, and also the World Association of Detectives. Yeah. So it's uh, thank you very much. We're out of time, unfortunately, Roy. But I'm uh. going to catch up with you on another show that we've already talked about. So I look forward to that. And uh, thank you both. And Brian had to drop off, but uh, thank you both for joining me. And I know it's been a little difficult, but I appreciate it. So okay, our listeners, great. thanks for Thank you, and thanks, Eddie. Again, okay, tune in next you. week, next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIC Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Thanks. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.